All right. Uh, I am joined now by uh, Gene Bajalon uh, and uh, and Daniel Bestner, both of whom uh, know much more about the stuff that I uh, that I do. So this is convenient since uh, I have been um, uh, I've been having tons of back pain the last couple of days. So I sub I sub to out the chair at the desk. So I'm going to try to lean into it for most of this. So I'll be able to do that much more easily if Gene and Danny are, uh, are talking more than I am. Uh, so, uh, oh, and, uh, and, and Daniel is fine. He assures me that, uh, that a puppy did that. Uh, he wasn't attacked by a human being or anything. Uh, so, uh, of course we, we wanted to do this. Um, and, and yeah, I'll also plead, uh, back problems in bed all day for my, uh, possibly, even more ridiculously disheveled uh, appearance than usual. So, um, so yeah, I think that a, a good place to uh, to start this off. Wanted to do this uh, the stream uh, because you know couldn't really fit it into uh, to a regular episode, but it seemed like with what's been going on lately with uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, this this would be a good. Uh, you know, this is something that, that we should cover. Uh, and I just read this afternoon uh, Gene's article about it uh, in Jacobin. So I was wondering, uh, Gene, if you could if you could start us off. We don't necessarily have to go back to the first century BC or anything, but we could. Sure. Uh, but 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 maybe we could start off with like you know World War One, the Russian Revolution, and you know get a little bit of uh, the background here. Sure. Um, well, thanks for having us on, uh, Ben, and I hope you feel better with your back. Uh, it can't be much fun. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if we look at the Caucasus region, it was a region that was colonized by Russia in the 19th century, and it's a diverse region with uh, many different populations, including Azerbaijani Turks and, and Armenians. And of course, as in many region, uh, mountainous regions, these populations live in an interspersed manner. And one of the outcomes of sort of Russian colonial rule was, of course, the exploitation of differences between these communities, which of course heightened tensions between the various, uh, you know, the Muslim Azerbaijani Turks and the Armenians and other communities in, uh, in the region. And of course, at the same time, you have the rise of nationalism, which again, uh, also sort of adds further flames uh, to tensions within this region. So these people had like, I wouldn't say lived in perfect harmony in a kind of bucolic paradise beforehand, but had lived alongside each other for centuries. But of course, in this new situation, you know, you have growing tensions. And the Tsarist regime manages to keep these under control. But as the Tsarist regime sort of uh, collapses, you know, the, the, the lid of all these tensions come up. And we see in 1905, uh, you know, the first serious clashes between uh, Azerbaijani Turks and and Armenians, and then this is repeated in the aftermath of the uh, First World War, which was particularly devastating to the Armenians, because although this is not directly connected, but during this First World War, you had the uh, genocide of Armenians in uh, Anatolia, which was a culturally and historically very important region for Armenians and you know this sort of creates the kind of existential crisis amongst Armenian nationalists so many of the conflicts with Azerbaijani Turks take place within the framework of uh you know the Armenians look at this uh, as another attempt at genocide in, in the 1920s the Soviets come in uh the the region is rearranged 
the brief independence of Armenia and Azerbaijan, which had come about following the 1917 revolution, is reversed. And these state, these two countries are reintegrated into, well, are integrated into the Soviet Union. And, you know, the Soviet Union attempts to solve the national question. And one of the ways they do it is by creating these autonomous uh, fraternal republics. But, of course, because the Caucasus is a, a very mixed region, uh, you know, it's difficult to draw lines about where people live. So you have this district called Karabakh or Nagorno-Karabakh, which is the mountainous Karabakh. So Karabakh is a little bit bigger, it includes the lowlands. But when we talk about Nagorno-Karabakh, we're talking about the highlands of this broader Karabakh region, which is predominantly Armenian. And, you know, the people there want to be part of the Armenian uh, uh, Republic. But the Soviet Union decides for a variety of different reasons to uh, put them in the Azerbaijani Republic, and they have a, an autonomous status within that republic. You know, there's a whole load of things that happens. There's an attempt at a Soviet Transcaucasian Federation that kind of ends in the late 1920s, and and basically, um, the so Soviet rule keeps these uh, tensions under wraps, but also it institutionalizes ethnic differences. And at the same time, there was a growing tension between Armenians and Azerbaijanis, especially because, uh, you know, the Azerbaijani government, even though granting, uh, you know, having a, this autonomy for Nakorno Karabakh, you know, is kind of neglecting the Armenian population. And these come to attention at the end of, you know, as the Soviet Union is collapsing. And, you know, Nakorno Karabakh's autonomous administration. Uh, requests independence and reattachment uh, to Armenia. The Azeris react by removing their autonomy, and this leads to an escalating sort of uh, cycle of violence, which sees massacres of both uh, Armenians and Azeris, because again, these populations are interspersed with one another. And when the Soviet Union collapses, uh, you know, uh, Nagorno Karabakh declares independence, Armenia goes to war with Azerbaijan. We have this really bloody war with a lot of ethnic cleansing. The Armenians win and, you know, ethnically cleanse over half a million uh, Azerbaijanis from the surrounding districts from Nakorno Karabakh. Uh, Armenians are ethnically cleansed from Azerbaijan. And then you know, in 1994, Russia steps in and there's a ceasefire. And there's been since that ceasefire kind of cold war that is, you know, there's been border clashes every couple of years. 2016, there was a pretty bad war in April, the four-year, uh, you know, a big battle in the front. But more or less, this conflict has been frozen uh, and attempts to sort of solve the issue long-term between the two sides have come, you know, have ultimately failed. And there's, you know, blame to go around on both sides. Armenia and Azerbaijan have, for different reasons, you know, at times, undermined uh, the peace process so it's it's uh, it, it, no one comes away from this uh, particularly clean so of course this latest round of violence is a new escalation in this long running saga that has sort of been going on since so, the end of the Soviet Union so so what happened this time like like why is it flaring up now i mean my my uh, my perception is that you know, there was actually some there was some clashes earlier this summer. Um, and Haider Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, I mean, there's short term and long term factors. The long term factor is that Azerbaijan has been getting richer and has been uh, with its oil wealth, 
the balance of power has been shifting in militarily more and more towards Azerbaijan. Uh, so, you know, the Azerbaijanis increasingly look towards a military solution to this unfavorable status quo to them. But at the same time, the shorter term solutions are, are that the short term reasons are that, you know, Haider Aliyev, the, uh, sorry, uh, Ilham Aliyev, the president of uh, uh, Azerbaijan, is under, well, under criticism for the growing corruption uh, within Azerbaijan. There were protests in 2019. Uh, and at the same time, he's under uh, attack from nationalists who, you know, are angry that, well, you know, you're propagating all this Azeri nationalism, but there's been no uh, success on the front. So, you know, earlier this year, uh, protesters stormed the Azeri parliament demanding war with Armenia. So uh, uh, Ilhan Aliyev, from his perspective, war is, I would say, partially a tool of uh, internal consolidation about dealing with opposition and dealing and consolidating its nationalist bake, uh, base. We should, we should also, we should also talk about Turkey, right? Because they, they're the, right. uh, they're the kind of big ally in the background for Azerbaijan. Yeah. I mean, and Turkey it's think about the pre uh, uh, first world war situation with Austria and Germany. Turkey's kind of given, you know, just as Germany gave Austria the blank check to go to war with uh, uh, Serbia, uh, Turkey is given this kind of blank check for Azerbaijan. There's a lot of debate among specialists about who's really calling the shots. Is this Erdogan's project? Is this Aliyev's project? You know, they both have reasons to want to escalate this conflict at this particular uh, moment in time. So I don't think it's really helpful to say that Azerbaijan is a puppet of Turkey or or, or Turkey is just doing Azerbaijan's bidding, but both leaders uh, have, you know, reasons to with, to do with internal consolidation, to do with their foreign policy, to escalate this conflict at this time. Yeah. So, so I want to get um, Danny in on this in a minute, but but I do just I do just want to say right since certainly as far as the way that a lot of, uh, of Armenians and, and, uh, and people from an Armenian background, you know, in, in other countries perceive this, that the Turkey angle is big because, um, you know, Turkey, uh, you know, in the early 20th century, literally committed uh, genocide uh, against Armenians. So, uh, so it's, there's, there's a kind of narrative that you can tell here uh, that, that, you know, that ties this into that, right. Because, because, uh, because Turkey is so important as a backer of Azerbaijan in this. Yeah, I, I mean, I would definitely agree uh, that you know, from the Armenian perspective, Turkey's involvement is seen as an extension of this uh, early 20th century genocide and an extension of Turkish hostility towards Armenians. And it's important to remember that Armenians still live in uh, in Turkey. There are still there's still an Armenian community, not so much in Anatolia anymore, still in Istanbul. Uh, one of the leading uh, members of the HDP, uh, you know, the People's Democratic Party in Turkey is an Armenian. Um, and, you know, this community in Turkey is, you know, getting harassed now within this uh, atmosphere. The Armenian patriarchy is based there, that's being harassed, and Armenians living in Kurtulush, which is, you know, people call it an Armenian district, but it's a district which is made up of middle-class people, which includes a lot of uh, Armenians, you know, the, the nationalists driving through there to intimidate people. So, you know, uh, it's, it's 
it's uh, a pretty terrifying experience for my Armenians living in uh, Turkey at the, uh, at the moment. And of course, the Armenian diaspora, as with many diasporas, is often more nationalist and more hardline than people living on the ground. So, of course, you know, the sort of anti-Turkish and anti-Azerbaijani rhetoric and the, the notion that these Turks and Azeris are like savages and bloodthirsty Muslims and things like that, that is obviously feeding into this kind of like very unhelpful cycle of, you know, discourse uh, that's, you know, dehum dehumanizes the two sides. Yeah, so um, so when when Gene was doing uh, the the historical backdrop uh, earlier, he was he was talking about the way that the uh, that the Soviet Union, you know, under Stalin, you know, tried to uh, to solve the uh, the national question there, and uh, you know, not this is not the only case that happened, right? You know, probably made things worse, uh, and um, and so I, I guess uh, part of why I was I was eager to uh, to have you be a part of this discussion, Daniel, is, is because you're, um, you know, is, is to kind of get a little bit of sort of big picture, you know, insight into, um, into the larger, um, you know, the larger thing that's, that's going on with, uh, you know, with, with some of this uh, geopolitically, because, you know, in, in some ways, like another sort of story that you could tell about this is that this is, you know, I mean, this is just more sort of fallout from this kind of post-Cold War, you know, post, uh, you know, post-Soviet, like ethnic conflicts, you know, uh, that, you know, that would also be a story that would include Yugoslavia and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, feel free to, to jump in and like kind of speak to any part of that that you want to. Sure. I mean, there's so many interesting things. I, when I think about the Soviet Union and the Azeris, for example, um, I think about how one could examine that from the perspective of how the Soviet Union tried to, you know, blend communism with particular local customs of Islam. Or if you think about Nagorno-Karabakh, you think about the difficulty of just generally controlling mountainous regions and mountainous regions, whether you're thinking about, you know, Western Pakistan, you know, Afghanistan are so difficult to pacify. And so there's a lot of really interesting um sort of ways you can approach this problem. So as someone who's not really a specialist on the caucuses, but who's in, who is interested in the larger question of geopolitics, uh, and Gene, um, feel free to jump in and tell me if I'm wrong. What's really interesting to me here is that how these, um, how this conflict between our, our, our Medians and the Azeris is basically, um, reflective of these new constellations of geopolitical power that are just beginning to emerge in the last five or six years, where you have uh, a United States that is clearly not going to act as it did in the 1990s as global policemen uh, or in the 2000s, 2010s as sort of this anti-terror um, state. Um, allowing for these new constellations to emerge. So ones that emerged uh, to me directly are China and Pakistan coming closer against India. Uh, you see India and Israel lying with each other. Now you see Turkey um, in, in this instance and the Russian Federation essentially um, fighting each other over, you know, oil and gas um, energy resources that are going to be crucial to them in the coming years. And of course, um, Azerbaijan uh, has been, has basically Baku in particular has played this role in European geopolitics for a century. Um, there's a very famous picture, I'm sure you all know of it, I think Hitler's birthday in 40 or 41, where he gets the cake with Baku uh, uh, centered in it. 
because this was the drive for the caucuses that you know basically engendered the invasion of the Soviet Union was a drive for these oil resources. Um, so um, it's interesting to me, uh, and Gene, as more of a specialist, I'm curious what you think if this is related to the so-called neo-Ottomanist policy that Erdogan is, you know trying to pursue. He, he tried to do this kind of Islamic thing in the 2000s, uh, but in the last five or six years, you see him reaching a rapprochement with Israel. You see him trying to sort of expand this influence in the, you know, the former Islamic territory of the uh, Ottoman Empire. Um, so it's interesting to me where you, as the United States, at least in a relative scale, retreats in some sense from the world, you get the emergence of these regional powers that I think are going to define at least the next five, 10 years of geopolitical conflict. Um, not to say that the Azeris or the Armenians are not you know, making use of these various sides for their own purposes as is always done, but it seems like there's different levels going on here. And I'm particularly interested in sort of that Erdogan, neo-Ottomanist element of it. Yeah, I mean, Gene, in your, in your Jacobin article, you talked about how there have been several areas, right, you know, lately where, where Turkey has kind of had what you, I think you, you use some phrase like great power pretensions lately. Yeah, I mean, I think Turkey is an interesting uh, part. I think that, you know, Daniel's correct uh, in, in pointing out, you know, like as the United States takes a more hands-off approach around the world, you know, this opens up space for places like Turkey. And because Turkey has a good relationship and is part of the Western alliance system, this facilitates the you know, uh, more aggressive foreign policy. Iran follows an aggressive foreign policy, but there's a lot more pushback because Iran is a kind of counter hegemonic uh, uh, state that, you know, Iran's foreign policy hasn't changed between the uh, before and after the Iranian revolution. It's always been to like dominate the Gulf. The only difference is that under the Shah, they were doing it in cooperation with the United States, and now they're doing it in op opposition to the United States. Turkey is an interesting case because despite Turkey, I, I mean, I'm very much, uh, a lot of us like uh, uh, people who work in Ottoman studies and Turkish history really hate the term neo-Ottomanism because it doesn't quite capture what's going on at the moment. The term neo-Ottomanism works in a sense for looking at Turkey's internal uh, affairs as we see a shift away from the kind of secularism of Ataturk towards a new Turkish Islamic synthetic ident national identity, which focuses a lot more on the Ottoman past. But if you look at where Turkey's intervening, you can make a strong argument that Erdogan's trying to rebuild the Italian empire because he's intervening in Libya, Somalia, uh, Albania, and places like that. And, you know, historically, Azerbaijanis who are Shia, uh, although Turkish, would have been sort of um, really an anathema to the Sunni Ottomans. So Erdogan is pursuing this very like kind of novel uh, foreign policy, which is opportunist to a certain extent, and which takes advantage of Turkey's, uh, the fact that, you know, Turkey has Europe over a barrel because they have the Syrian refugee flow, which means the ability of Europe to push back on uh, any Turkish uh, uh, maneuvering is limited. Turkey is an American ally, so there's a lot Turkey can do that it can get away with that it wouldn't get away with. So it has this kind of interesting position where there's a lot of anti-American, anti-imperialist discourse in Turkey. But Turkey's ability to expand overseas is precisely because it's part uh, of the Western sy uh, system. And it's taking advantage of this in Azerbaijan, in, uh, uh, in, in Libya, uh, and in Syria. These were all, you know, uh, 
well, facilitated by the United States or Russia uh, to, a, uh, to a certain uh, degree. And, you know, as Turkey, Turkey plays this more aggressive role, there are areas, for example, where they conflict with Russia and areas where they, like, can work with Russia. There are areas where they work with the United States. So it's kind of this uh, trying to pursue a more independent nationalist foreign policy, which is framed to a certain degree in, in Islamic unity, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's like a lot of, uh, you know, Islamic discourse coming out, but in terms of Azerbaijan is, is very much in pan-Turanist, Turkish nationalist uh, uh, framework as well. So, yeah, I think it's an interest, you know, I, I think seeing these new powers emerge is in an interesting dynamic. Yeah, and, and uh, you mentioned Russia a minute ago, and, and I guess we should we should probably dwell on that for a second because uh, we, we've talked a lot about the relationship between uh, Turkey and, and Azerbaijan, but uh, but Armenia's you know big protector here uh, is uh, is is Russia, uh, and uh, and I think something you said in the article is that uh, it's it's possible that like you know from Putin's perspective this is. Um, you know, this is all a good thing, you know, because it uh, it reminds the Armenians that they need him. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, in, you know, for much of Armenia's post-independence history, just like Azerbaijan, it's dominated by these former apparatchiks guys. In fact, in Armenia, many of them have origins in Nagorno-Karabakh. So they're very kind of like serious about Nagorno-Karabakh. But then in 2018, you had this uh, velvet revolution and that, you know, I think the Russians are very concerned about those kind of things. We saw yeah. what happened in Georgia. Yeah, Georgia, yeah. Georgia, is example. So I think, you know, from Putin's perspective, you know, letting Azerbaijan and Turkey, uh, giving them a free hand to do this, you know, helps keep uh, the new administration, which has been moving against corruption to a certain degree and, you know, doing this, that, making some changes. And um, yeah, I think that reminds them of the importance of of the Russian uh, connection. If you read the critiques coming out of Azerbaijan, they call they say Armenia is not a real country because it's basically just a Russian colony and does what Russia wants. You know, Russia at the same time is playing both sides and using its position to you know have leverage on both sides. So using some leverage on the Armenians. So what do you think? Um what is Erdogan's goal here? This is this is what I don't quite understand. Like I could see what the Azerbaijan, uh, the Azeris are trying to do, what the Armenians are going to do, and what what why Putin's trying to you know the classic southern border issue sure. that has bedeviled Russia for five hundred years. But like, what is Erdogan's goal? This is this is what's the most interesting thing to me. I mean, there's obviously the the pipeline, which is you know Turkey really wants, of course, but I just can't his foreign policy seems to just lurch from strategy to strategy every four or five years. And, and as a Turkish specialist, I, since I have you on the line, what's he trying to do here? <laughs> I mean, I think we have to look at the different phases of the Erdogan administration, because earlier on during the Erdogan administration, you know, it's uh, it wasn't such a one-man show, right? right? There were multiple power centers. Uh, you know, the foreign minister could conduct a foreign policy and, and you know, David Oldu, who later became the prime minister, had this zero problems 
policy where you try to use right. soft power and things like that. But you know, increasingly, as uh, Turkey has become a one-man show, where the presidency has been enhanced, um, you know, foreign policy is a prestige issue, in my opinion. In some ways, is to do with consolidating uh, uh, Erdogan's power from war abroad. For example, the invasion of Syria, right? Uh, the attack on on the Kurds of Syria, that played a very a good function in domestic affairs because it stops the consolidation of the opposition. The opposition is divided into pro-peace and Turkish nationalist factions. No rapprochement is possible while war is happening. With Azerbaijan, it's a win-win situation. For the price of selling the Azerbaijanis some drone technology and some airplanes, sending some Syrian mercenaries across there, Turkey is expanding its influence and probably making some money out of this uh, at a tough time. So I think part of it's to do with domestic uh, consolidation. Part of it, I think, has an economic imperative to it. A, a good example is uh, Libya. Turkey, uh, and I had actually I had a personal friend who did business in Libya. Before Gaddafi's fall, Turkey had a lot of interests in 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 Libya, right? It's a place where you know Turkey Turkish businessmen would often head off to these like frontiers because you know, it was a place where they could make money. So, you know, Turkey is trying to reestablish economic in influence in, in, in those areas. In the Eastern Mediterranean, there's all these issues to do with natural gas as well. So beyond the kind of political aspects, there's economic aspects too. So I have a question just again as a non-specialist. So historians tell the stories like there's this Arab nationalist moment from let's say the 30s to the 70s. And there's this Islamic moment from the 70s forward that sort of replaces that Arab nationalism. Um, I was just wondering, is there like an Islamic factor here where it's like Turkey versus Wahhabi of, of the Saudis or uh, the, the Shias in Iran? And like, we don't view it from that perspective because, you know, we're like Islam is not the hot thing of the day. Um, but it just seems like when, one thing that I'm looking, trying to get this macro historical trend is like, are we seeing something new in the so-called Islamic world uh, that is being reflected in this struggle that is like this post- it, it, this post post Arab nationalism moment. I mean, that's that's an interesting perspective. I think there certainly is a struggle for who is the leader of the Sunni world, you know. And uh, you know, traditionally we've looked at the struggle between Saudi Arabia and Egypt, right? Making, yeah. making it. But I think Turkey under Erdogan is making, you know, Turkey for much of its history orientated its foreign policy towards the West. Um, but now Erdogan is making a play to be an important Middle Eastern and Islamic leader. And obviously there, there are like material reasons behind that, but all, you know, at the same time, I think, uh, I think, yeah, you, I think with, it's not so much as an ancient sectarian aspect to it because Turkey maintains reasonable relations with Shia Iran. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, so I think it comes down to uh, taking a leadership role in the kind of Middle Eastern sort of uh, the, the Middle Eastern and Islamic region. It seems more anti-Saudi to me than anything. Yeah, like, like that that's how I would understand it. It's like they're orienting themselves towards the Saudis in some way in the last five, 10 years. I think Erdogan realized he would never be a full member of the EU. I remember I, in 2007, I met an EU president, uh, vice president, and he's like, we're never letting Turkey in. You know, they're never going to be a real thing. And I think I think he saw the writing on the wall correctly, frankly, and is now really in a really interesting way 
moved in this like oriented himself in a new way which um and the only reason i know about this is one of my students is writing on turkey right turkey israeli relations and sort of israel is this like key figure in how erdogan imagines himself i think yeah i think israel is a really fascinating case because turkey has historically had really great relations with right. israel and they were buying weapons off them and drones and things like that until relatively recently turkey's built its own drone industry now but of course, on a <laughs> it's a discursive ISI. Level. Yeah, exactly. Well, the Tur I can't remember what the Turkish drone is called, but you can see pictures of them on Twitter. But uh, they're very proud of the, this too. But I think, um, yeah, like Israel, uh, you know, Israel were the ones who caught Abdullah Öcalan, the leader of the PKK in 1999. Israel has had strong security relations with the, uh, the Turkish military establishment. But as this kind of independent military establishment has been like weakened and then after the 2016 coup annihilated, um, you know, Israel bashing is like a freebie, right? Israel's never gonna do anything about it. And it all, it's, you know, nothing beats a bit of anti-Semitism, you know, uh, to, to rile up, uh, to rile That's up the street. Yeah. <laughs> to rile up the street. And as Saudi Arabia moves away, uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt move away from uh, uh, even pretending to care about the Palestinians. This leaves an opportunity for Erdogan to kind of re, you know, uh, reimagine himself as like this pr protector of the Palestinians, this supporter of. I mean, you know, he used the term "our town" to refer to Jerusalem. Now, I don't think he meant "our town" as in a town of Turkey, but more of in a kind of spiritual right. sense. But you know, obviously, that discourse is. Uh, you know, uh, pretty inflammatory. So I think, um, I think, yeah, I think Erdogan is, is, is using, you know, cultural issues, just like any right-wing politician does to enhance their political and material interest. Makes sense. Uh, so I, I did want to get in a couple of questions uh, from chat. Uh, 49 Hamburger uh, asks, uh, and uh, maybe throw this one to uh, to Daniel. How does uh, the USA handle having multiple hegemons in the Middle East as the USA's soft power has less and less effect on the region? Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, how would I handle it? Uh, I don't think the best Middle Eastern policy is an alternative energy policy in the United States, right. as far as I'm concerned. Uh, leave the region, uh, let, let, let people work it out. Um, so th the question is, what is a Biden administration going to do or a Trump administration going to do? I mean, I think Trump will continue to show a general disinterest in the region. And I imagine, uh, particularly in the caucuses, and I imagine that's going to be relatively true of the Biden administration as well. I think um, a Biden administration, you're going to see basically a slight drawing down in the Middle East and a buffeting up of tensions with China. Um, I think that's almost certainly um, going to be the main thing that you'll see. Um, and by tensions, I mostly mean rhetorical tensions because I don't see how the United States and China are going to possibly disentangle their entirely imbricated economies in any meaningful way. Um, so I just think the United States is going to be, take a backseat to this. Um, Gene, are they selling weapons to both sides right now? I've seen different things. Oh, uh, China? No, the, the U.S., that's a good question. I don't think, I mean, like, I don't know, to be honest. So yeah, no one knows, really. So this is the question. <laughs> but I don't think they're a particularly important player because, you know, the Azerbaijani army and the Armenians, they rely on Soviet equipment. I know the Israelis are selling equipment to, uh, uh, there might be some stuff that they're selling. The Azeris have spent a hell of a lot of money on lobbying in the United States. Right. 
I mean, there was a great article in Foreign Policy which talked about all the lobbying that's been done, a lot of slush fund. And I don't know if this is true, but one of my former students is a is a legislative assistant in Jefferson City. And he told me, and again, I don't know if this is true, apparently 18 state legislatures um, recognized the, uh, one of the massacres of Azerbaijanis as a, like a day of mourning, which I found, you know, I don't know if it's true, but it's, you know, it sounds the kind of thing that a lobbying group might do, just get these random state legislatures to like recognize a, a massacre and th uh, things like that. So, you know, there are definitely some connections uh, there, but I'm not sure about the weaponry issue. I think it's mainly Soviet equipment. Uh, so, so I, I thank you. I was just curious about that because I've seen different things. Um, yeah, there, was, there, was, there was a question earlier about about Israeli involvement. Uh, so, so that actually maybe dwell on that for a second. Uh, so, uh, so the, the the Israelis have uh, have been selling weapons to this would be Armenia. No, to Azerbaijan. Oh, Azerbaijan. Okay, interesting. Yeah, Azerbaijan has tried to sell itself as being like a moderate Muslim power that's like pro-Israel. So Israel has pretty... So it's a weird uh, case. Whereas Israel and Turkey are like butting heads in some places. On yeah, that surprised me. Uh, yeah, on Azerbaijan. I was surprised when I read this. But there's been... Actually, the, the Israeli government has been criticized within the Israeli press as well about, about this. So... I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but yes, as far as I know, and this comes from Israeli sources, there have been, you know, that there's these weapon sales, and obviously Armenia is not not very happy about it. Uh, and I just one thing, uh, Ben, I wanted to add, I think, to the question: How does the U.S. deal with these rising powers? Is I think kind of the question of foreign policy. So I think there's two quite major questions of foreign policy, let's say in the next generation, 20 years. Uh, the first one is the more important one to me, which is how do you deal with climate change and truly transnational issues like refugee flow? We're going through an enormous um, era of population movement, which is, you know, something we haven't seen since World War II and probably on a greater scale than World War II for a lot of different reasons. So uh, how do you deal with transnational problems like that. And then also, how do you deal not with great power competition, which I think is going to remain relatively status quo, but what do you deal, what do you do with the rise of the so-called, what used to be called in the 19th century, middle powers like Turkey, um, middle powers like India, you know, uh, who are going to be thorns in the side, Turkey and Russia, or um, even though they get along, or Turkey and Europe, uh, or, you know, India and China. Um, I think that is really a major geopolitical question. And I think that, you know, the left, <laughs> as many things have foreign policy, it doesn't really have a good answer for it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, as more and more people go into these issues, how it's going, uh, how that's going to get uh, um, worked out, essentially. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess also, well, actually, sorry, so so one quick off topic thing, just, uh, just, uh, just while I'm thinking about it, and, and then we'll get back on since uh, you were, uh, you were saying in your answer to the first part of the question that you think that under a Biden administration, uh, there would be escalated rhetorical tensions with China, but that'll be about it. Uh, and uh, so, so just just for fun, uh, if um, you know, I mean, I know right now Biden is uh, is further ahead in the polls than than Hillary was, and uh, etc. Right, but uh, but take the uh, the the five percent or whatever chance that uh, that Trump manages to either win an electoral college victory straight out or or manages to you know whatever you can fill in the nightmare details of whatever post-election scenario you know there might be and so we actually do get 
a second Trump term. Uh, do you think that in that case, the U.S. tensions with with China, uh, you know, stay rhetorical, or 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 that something beyond that happens? Um. Well, the question is, what would be on that? So Trump did have a trade war. That was a real thing that really did affect certain industries. He, he, I don't think the Chinese particularly appreciate, you know, the Wuhan virus, Chinese virus thing. But I mean, I just think China has um, a wise foreign policy from its perspective, from its perspective when it's dealing with the U.S. I think it has three major goals, um, from what I can tell. Uh, one, it wants to get out under the thumb of the dollar. Um, in the long term, that is like a major goal. Two, it wants to get out under any potential, and it's already kind of done this, um, influence of international institutions that are essentially Western governed, which creating this sort of alternative institutional structure, which it has already done. And third, I think it wants to provide itself guaranteed access to particular raw materials um, throughout you know, the, the world that has been traditionally North Atlantic dominated. Um, I don't think China has any designs on global hegemony in the way that the US was able to achieve global hegemony after World War II. I think it has designs on regional hegemony and will likely be checked by a coalition that includes um, India and basically the US allies now. Um, and so I think that is what it's going to do and what it is going to achieve. Um, so I think then another issue, uh, and Gene and Ben feel free to disagree with me, is like a, an intellectual problem. I don't think we're anywhere near the material realities where this would be a real live issue. Is like, is there a way to create a more legitimate international institutional structure that is able to not really deploy force? I just don't see how that's a, really going to happen, but to coordinate true responses to things like climate change when countries like India and China are at an earlier stage of development to use the stages terms no one likes anymore. And so I think these are the issues that are going to confront it. But I don't think, I personally don't think in 50 years, the United States will be the hegemon in East Asia. Yeah. I well, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll let, I'll let Jane give a, uh, a more in-depth answer by, uh, uh, I guess all, all I really have to say about the institu international institutions thing is God, I hope so, right? Because it, it's really right. This is the big issue. Yeah. I mean, I think like this is like a really, really difficult issue for like a thousand different reasons. And I think a lot of people like anti-imperialists have semi-punted on it because the, the current ones are so illegitimate and so clearly like a velvet glove over the dominance of the North Atlantic. Um, but I mean, I just don't see a way out of some sort of international institutions, uh, international institution as a means to global coordination. But I don't have no idea how one gets there <laughs> in a yeah, real way. That's what I wanted to ask you, Daniel, is, is you know, this, this comes down to sort of the intellectual projects of the left on how to build any kind of alternative, because it strikes me when I listen to, you know, discussions on foreign policy, we're either at the only solution is sort of international proletarian revolution, right? Good luck. Yeah. Or, and then there's nothing between that and, uh, you know, like liberal interventionism. You have, right. this, you, you know, you have like a whole, like, the question would come, uh, and this was raised by you know one of my colleagues, Cuba, you know who's who, who works at um, uh, he works in the military industrial complex a little bit. Has a little bit of insight. It's, it's like you know the the problem is that if and he was a big Bernie fan was like if Bernie Sanders had become president, who's going to staff his foreign ministry? I was going to security yeah. apparatus of everything. You know, and his point is like we need institu international institutions. We need like. Mongolia should have the space mining institute and Iceland should be the like internet police. You know, we need those kind of things. But, you know, that, and this is not my idea, but this is the point raised by Cuba was, um, you know, 
we just don't have any cadre who are thinking on like what if a social democrat or or, or, or democratic socialist becomes president who the hell's going to staff everything There's so not I, daniel Besson's out there so i've been writing and thinking about this for years because my academic work was on the rise of think tanks and they were actually incredibly effective in you know getting particular ideas into the institutions so um i think this is a real problem and i think this is one of the issues bernie as i view it was a hail mary pass that was essentially going to try to sub subvent <laughs> decades of left organic organizing by, by winning. And so what the problems that should he have won was precisely who would, who, would, who would be on that NSC? Who would be on that Department of State? Who would be on that DOD? And I got to tell you, it was going to be, Ob my guess is it would have been Obama administration veterans. Um, so um, I, I actually advised the Bernie campaign. And one of the, the, the main thing that I stress, like if there was like a unifying theme, it was like, you had to you had to get like the task force, like the United States, uh, a Bernie administration needed to come in and start by basically having a series of task forces just to literally analyze the incredibly contract uh, complex structure of how power actually works in the United States and the choke points where, you know, there's 40 people who are like left wing foreign policy people where you would actually put them to ensure that, you know, the Ben Rhodeses of the world don't dominate foreign policy or, 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 who, or whomever it may be, but it's a real issue. You're getting yeah. a little of it with the Quincy Institute, but the Quincy Institute is very consciously not left wing. It's restraint, and that's a different thing. Um, so, I mean, I think you're going to, it's, it's a, it's a years long project, and I, but I do think there's a lot of millennials and younger who grew up in the wake of Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, blah, 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 who are ready to do this. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's a problem in general, right? I mean, like the only, like, God, I mean, like the, uh, you start thinking about left wing think tanks on, on anything, right. You know, like, like even, even the stuff that they, even the stuff that the left has plausible things to say about and likes to talk about all the time, you know, in, in terms of, uh, domestic policy, you know, it's like, okay, there's like the people's policy project, which is basically, guy, you know, yeah. one, one guy, Matt Brunig, you know, doing some crowdfunding and, you know, like he'll, he'll give people, Anyway, it's it's a very uh, like like that's like that's kind of where we're at, and it's it's particularly a problem uh, for the foreign policy stuff and that sort of hypothetical where you know Bertie had won or you know whatever you know. It's also a problem. Rashida, Rashida Tlaib becomes president in twenty twenty eight or whatever because because if like we don't even conceptually have a good answer to to Gene's question, what's what's the midpoint between just sort of hoping for international proletarian revolution to make it all go away? and default into liberal liberal interventionism and then the only people you could even hire uh for the uh, for the foreign policy shop for for a bernie administration would be old old obama people then that sounds to me like a hypothetical sanders administration that would have ended up default into liberal interventionism especially if you i mean the question is if bernie was like that first year i'm going to spend all my political capital on going after the military industrial complex i just don't think he would have done that i think he would have done m4a and something else um but i mean this is this is what i've been trying to like build out myself intellectually in the last few years these sorts of these sorts of questions and they're really difficult particularly in foreign policy because it's so elite driven it's so driven by literally there's not that many people in what i call the military intellectual complex of people who like create the ideas of American empire, you know, they all go to the same schools. There's a class bias toward all of these institutions, which makes it even more difficult than in an area like, let's say, M4A, where you could like rise through the ranks of different professions to become a policy person eventually. And the foreign policy establishment generally, because like you're not fighting a war after the all volunteer force, you got this position because you went to Princeton, you know, or something <laughs> along those lines. So there's this class bias that is very difficult to overcome. 
And I would note the only people who do come from outside of that circle are people who go through the military route. So that, you know, the only outside blood um, that comes in is uh, uh, people who are deeply invested in, in, in the military. So, I mean, I think this is a more a bigger problem with uh, elite institutions in general and how they monopolize, you know, these positions. And, and as Daniel says, it's like, uh, you know, you end up knowing loads of people who are in high, if you go to one of these institutions, you don't get a job because you did well at school. You, go, you get a job because you smoked weed with uh, someone's son uh, and helped him avoid like going to prison or something like that, or you were just a buddy and things like that. So I think the foreign policy establishment is, I mean, there are people in like DC think tanks who like, at least in like Turkish affairs who I rate as like pretty good and who are pretty skeptical, but like on an organizational basis, because the left doesn't have any money and the money it has, it's not going to spend it on like the left wing uh, foreign policy think tank. It's going to be on something to do with Medicare. Like foreign policy is so far down the list. It's so far down. <laughs> so far down the list of priorities. Like people, but it, 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 it it's, uh, it, it's like, and I like, and I too wrestle with this because it's like, you know, you, anytime you try and articulate, okay, let's do a foreign policy, people on the left are like, well, you're like a sellout to imperialism. It's like, okay, right. if you take over the American empire, uh, what are you going to do? So, so listen to this, Gene and Ben, you'll like this story. An unnamed popular left-wing press um, approached me about writing a book on left-wing foreign policy. So I did a proposal and it was essentially that intermediate realm that Gene was talking about. The proposal was turned down because they wanted me to like look at what Cuba and Vietnam were doing and take inspiration. And so to me, this is just like, what world are we living in? You know, like yeah, yeah. a social Democrat, the head of the fucking most powerful empire in human history. I'm sorry, Vietnamese foreign policies doesn't really have that much to say to that. You know, we're, we're, we're charting a new, a new path and maybe they be inspiration or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But this is like a different thing. So I think we on the left, ultimately some reason we don't even want to think about it because power actually manipulating foreign policy power is going to be very ethically compromising. There are only bad options. Um, no, for sure. So, yeah, yeah, yeah and, for and, sure. Yeah, Ben, and you're the ethics guy, so you know better than <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I was going to say, right? I mean, I think, look, I mean, I think I don't know that much. I know much less about the Vietnamese case. I think that, I think that, uh, I think Cuban foreign policy, you know, is very inspiring, you know, in many ways, right? I mean, like nothing brings out my uh, my inner tanky, like, uh, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, thinking about Cuba sending doctors around, doctors the, world around the world, and, you yeah, know, and, 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 and for that matter, I mean, as, as far as, uh, as, as far as use of force, you know, helping to uh, defeat apartheid, you know, in Angola, but, um, but right, you know, that's, that's clearly uh, just an entirely different, like, I think that that's like, I think Cuba probably does about as well as as a um, as an isolated and impoverished third world country possibly could in, in, in its uh, interventions in the world, but uh, but uh, the, uh, that's that's just a very 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 different project uh, than than trying to figure out uh, what um, transitioning the U.S. to to some sort of for, you know like more robustly post imperial foreign policy looks like, especially if um, if we our, our purpose isn't just to wind down the empire, although of course that that should be 
you know, like that should be a big part of it. And, and, and arguably, right. I mean, it shouldn't be so far down our list because this is, you know, winding down the empire is the most useful thing the left could, you know, the American left could contribute to the rest of the world. Uh, but that's also not our only project. I mean, if we actually, if we actually took power, uh, one thing that we'd want to do, for example, is to uh, is to guarantee that like life would continue to exist on Earth, um, ideally, you know, which which um, you know I'm I'm being like slightly hyperbolic, but you know, but I mean the um, you know even if that wasn't exactly what we, what was at stake, right? You know, like like we are facing climate catastrophe, and it is very hard to see um, how that gets solved without some sort of robust, uh, robust international, you know, institutions, you know, like, I, I just don't see, you know, I, I just don't see a scenario where like every country just sort of independently does its own little green new deal and that's enough. And then you get into questions like what if Saudi or Israel had, you know, like what, what role do they play? You know, and this is, these are not great questions. These are not I don't like any of the answers to any of these things, but I just no, don't. no, for for sure, and, and also for that matter, on the subject of in, international institutions, right? I mean, like uh, you can be in a sense um, robustly anti-interventionist, but when we think, for example, about something like uh, the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict right now, it would be good if there was at least something that could be done to at least you know pressure the sides into some sort of negotiation. Uh, I mean, I, I often think, and you were talking about ethics earlier that, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing this book uh, about uh, about Christopher Hitchens and, uh, and, I, and I think about uh, Hitchens in the last decade when he started taking all of the bad foreign policy positions. Uh, and, um, you know, I would like to, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I would like to have something to say to like 2005 Hitchens uh, when 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 he made when he said you know like oh hey you're 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 anti-war then you know hey you're just like selling out Iraqi Kurds you know for example right you know and and I think that I think that the answer certainly shouldn't be to say that you know he was right I mean I think that his positions on all that stuff were a moral and political disaster uh, but uh, I think that we I think we do need a better answer than just saying you know oh well. Um, I, I, I guess like, you know, we'll, we'll roll the dice that like the, the, uh, utilitarian calculation, um, you know, will like that, that nothing will be better than this. Yeah. And this is why I was like the task force guy. I'm like task force, task force, ta task force on bases, task force on budget, task force on the NSC. Cause we don't even have answers, you know, and I, I I'll, I'll stop after this, but I think it's really critical because when you look at like what the progressive movement did well. Um, is that they had 40 years to prepare for the New Deal. They had a million plans, you know? So when FDR finally won, uh, won the election, he was able to choose. Uh, and I worry that we don't have that in foreign policy. And I think that's what we should do now, particularly because it's likely a real lefty won't be in until President Ocasio-Cortez and whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you, uh, if you can't get... <laughs> If uh, if unnamed popular press uh, won't uh, you know won't, won't do it, you should still write that. You should still write that anyway. If if uh, worst case scenario, I'm sure I'm sure Doug would take it for zero. But uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's a very necessary book. But I, I do want to get a couple questions from chat before we before we wrap up that uh, are are more nuts and bolts things uh, about the immediate subject. 
Uh, so actually, I'll I'll just I'll just do two and then then throw these to Gene. So um, one of them was, uh, do you think Azerbaijan is holding off on attacking Armenia proper directly? They have on the borders to not get Russia involved, or are they not thinking that far ahead? And then the other one was. Um, from uh, Ali uh, Kasagam, is there any proof to the Turkish claim regarding PKK fighters? Yeah, so on the first front, um, there was some discussion, you know, in Armenia about whether Azerbaijan's attack triggered the military treaty. And Putin was pretty clear that because uh, Nikonor Karabakh is not recognized as part of Armenia, this doesn't count as an attack on Armenia. But obviously, uh, an attack on Armenia proper could be could you know putin's words which are you know like obscure and uh, mercurial as usual could be a warning to say don't ex escalate this war too much otherwise we will have to get involved but the other factor is that it's nearly winter and nobody wants to fight a war in the winter so my suspicion would be you know there's going to be this process over the winter over the winter and this is just my guess like i may be totally wrong where like fighting is a little bit sporadic there's a bit of on and off fighting but basically nobody can really do anything because it's too cold and so it's just a restock and rearm period and we may see a resumption of this conflict once you know the the thaw comes down so yeah i think like one of the reasons that this is not escalating like faster is like weather um, on the PKK question, this is actually pretty funny because I saw that there was a tweet from Azerbaijani intelligence, uh, which was like a recording of supposedly PKK fighters doing a like, you know, on the comms, right? And like, it was like, you don't have to be like a super intelligent, like military expert to know that it was fake. Number one the communications were in Sorani Kurdish, which is the dialect spoken in Iraqi Kurdistan. And like there are obviously Iraqi Kurds in the PKK, but they're like a very small minority. And the main, uh, so like, it's really weird that you would have them speaking in that particular dialect of Kurdish. And that's, you'd only pick that up if you know a bit about Kurds. The second thing is the PKK does most of its communications in Turkish. So, like, why are they doing communications in, in like, uh, di Iraqi Kurdish dialect when the PKK's, like, general military language is Turkish? Because, you know, lots of Kurds in Turkey don't speak Kurdish. They've been assimilated, so they use Turkish. And thirdly, like, the guys on the thing are, like, saying the most dumb stuff, like, like, hello, comrade, this is me on the phone. Hey, comrade. So it's, like, I don't know if it was, like, really bad fake Turkish intelligence, or the PKK made it to make the Azerbaijani intelligence service look stupid. But like it, uh, there's been rumors, like I am super, super skeptical that anyone from the PKK is like heading to, like heading all the way around to get to uh, Armenia to go fight Turks. There, there are Turkish military operations in Syria and Iraq. If they want to fight the Turks, they'll fight them there. Makes sense. Uh, one uh, from uh, Shinobu Sensui, um, uh, punt this over to Danny, says, uh, is establishing a cross-ideological coalition to scale back U.S. military interventions a realistic possibility, uh, for example, among leftists and libertarians? Uh, it's already happening now in the Quincy Institute, uh, which 
I would say is, uh, <laughs> it's hard to put a percentage, but I would say has more of a left bent than not. Um, but there's also a few libertarians and it's funded by Soros and Charles Koch. Uh, so this is where you get into the nitty and, and Ben, I, I'd love to uh, do a political ethics podcast with you. Yeah. It'd be really interesting because this is like, you know, where you're taking Charles Koch's money, you know, right. uh, and someone who you might not agree with about many other things, or you're taking George Soros's money, someone who George Soros was very into the responsibility to protect for many years. Um, and so um, it's a really interesting question. And I think there's sophisticated thinking to be done. I mean, because you don't want to, on one hand, like, obviously, you know, of course, we live in the world. And of course, you make these sorts of strange bedfellows alignments. But then again, look what happened to the SBD in Weimar, right, where mm -hmm. you have this like very strange, you know, you're allying with like the nationalist conservatives against the communists. Um, yeah. Which is also not totally the SPD's fault, but whatever it may be. But these are really difficult questions. Yeah. But I think the answer is yes, of course. But then think seriously and hard about the actual stakes and ethics and realities that that um, lead to. Yeah, just just to just to be clear, if anybody got confused about this, the uh, official GTAA position is that uh, align with the Fry Corps and Marie Rosa Luxemburg is bad. <laughs> right, um, right, exactly, right. <laughs> so this is what found, but that founds the Republic and the SPDs. I mean, so this is, yeah. you know, they're like, we're either going to get monarchy or we're going to ally. And these are, that was a terrible move actually, but there are ones later on in the twenties that were like more questionable. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, for sure. And, and, and look, I mean, I, I think that, uh, <laughs> I guess I uh, I guess I already said something like a little Stalinist earlier, so I'll I'll, I'll do another one and and say that um, you know that uh, doing the opposite, right? You know, having having incredibly broad popular front coalitions to uh, to stop fascism was uh, you know was was probably the right move because it's you know better that we're not living under fascism. <laughs> but uh, yeah, sorry, do you, do you want to jump in on this? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the important things is that we shouldn't fetishize alliances with, you know, elements on the right. Uh, I think for some people on the left, it becomes like a point of principle, like there's this kind of, oh, we're all just populists against the system. I think it's really critical that we deal with things on an issue by issue basis. So, you know, like, Anyone like uh, was what's his name that that dude on the rising saga saga whatever his name yeah, is yeah you yeah. know he can, he can say stuff which is like yeah that's a good critique but like the critique is not the it's not the it's not the sandwich we need to like know what the solution is so right. if we have if we have a if we have a we like hey we don't want to sell weapons to uh, Azerbaijan right or, or or anymore and the libertarians are like yeah we're going to support that legislation that's great. We'll do that, right? That's that's fine. But I think this fetishization of like let's 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 work together, you know, because it's a good thing to do per se is I think can be a little bit of a silly uh, path to go down. No, that yeah, right. So actually, it's kind of funny you use that example. I, I was on uh, Rising this morning, and and at the end, I I invited. Uh, Sagar to uh, to come on uh, come on the show sometime, and uh, if he uh, if he takes me up on it, right? That that is exactly the point that I'd, I'd push. Uh, that uh, it's it's actually the point I did push in the last episode was interviewing his uh, co-host uh, Crystal, uh, which is that you know I think that it's very easy to say, hey, here are all the things that are bad, uh, and uh, but then 
you say like, you know, you can, you know, Tucker Carlson, right. Can, can sort of score some populist points, you know, by, uh, by talking about how it's bad that people are paid so little and they don't have healthcare, but then somehow he doesn't actually support, uh, you know, $15 an hour or Medicare for all. Uh, and, and I think that those sorts of really basic questions, right. You know, it's like, okay, well, uh, are you going to become a leftist basically, you know, by, by actually embracing those solutions or is there some, you know, market solution that would, that would be okay with your conservative principles? If so, what is it? Uh, and then let's argue about that. Right. I, I think that's the, I think that's, I think rather than either fetishizing uh, the, uh, the cross ideological agreement or, um, uh, or sort of reacting to, to, uh, to any engagement, you know, with, with anybody on the right, like, um, you know, like, like Dracula reacting to the cross. Uh, I, I think that, I, th I think that just sort of having that grounded, you know, like I loved it actually when uh, Red Scare had Bannon on because, because uh, they asked him that flat out, right? If you're such a populist, you know, why don't you support Medicare for all? Uh, and and he so manifestly didn't have a good answer. I think on the foreign policy thing, I mean, I, I think in a sense it's different, in a sense it's not. Uh, that the the sense in which it's not is what we've been talking about, right? That you you do you know you do need uh, international institutions, you know, deal with things like climate change to one hopes uh, find some non-interventionist way of uh, calming down uh, flare-ups uh, like Armenia, Azerbaijan. Uh, but the sense in which, which it is different is that part of the solution really is just um, not non-interventionism, at least if what we mean by intervention is, is like war intervention. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that that's something I've, I've heard Daniel, you know, talk about before is that we can, um, is that we can separate out somewhat, or it might be useful for a future left government to separate out some uh, the uh, the governmental aspect of approach to some of these things to the uh, the civil society you know international solidarity approach uh, side of it right because because we do uh, you know like look I mean it, it's not a left wing position to just be uh, indifferent to the working class somewhere else in the world being crushed you know by some despotic regime uh, but that doesn't mean that we have to have interventionist solutions, you know, we, the left movement can hold power governmentally, uh, uh, but also have a grassroots that's doing civil society stuff to, uh, to try to help people in civil societies in those countries. Yeah. And that's why it's useful to think in terms of movement, um, which movements have different, different legs, you know, like, so one might be the socialist element of the democratic party. Another one might be labor unions that are actually socialist. Another one might be avowedly socialist independent organizations, all of which are part of the democratic socialist movement. Um, and different people have different roles to play, uh, in, in different sort of spaces at different times. And that's just thinking creatively and seriously about politics, qua politics, which is something we're just starting to do in the last five, six years on, on the social called you know rising left yeah, makes sense to me uh so since we do have to wrap up in uh in just a minute uh i i do uh i do want to do the the big thing that i think we haven't talked about today just for uh, just for a couple minutes at the end which is uh what uh you know what what is uh what is to be done right so uh you you said earlier gene uh that uh that part of um you know that part of you know the frustration uh, on the uh, the Azerbaijani side is is the lack of resolution. I mean, in, in some ways, that's less of a um, 
you know, less of a frustration for for the Armenians because the de facto resolution favors them. Uh, and there was a there was a good question actually earlier that I, that I didn't get to then because uh, I wanted to come back to it uh, now, which is somebody who I think maybe picked up on something you'd said about things being unresolved and said, uh, "Isn't it better to resolve uh, issues uh, rather than compromise without closure?" Right. So of course, um, uh, closure is is good, but uh, but I mean, surely the only possible way out of this does involved uh does involve compromise and some sort of negotiated long-term solution i mean yeah i think uh and you know obviously i'm not an armenian or an azerbaijani so in a certain way i don't really have a right to say like what the solution should be but it strikes me the ultimate solution if there is to be one is actually nokono karabakh which you know has boundaries as a former soviet district becomes part of armenia and armenia evacuates from the lowlands around uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, the lowland Karabakh, and returns those territories uh, to Azerbaijan. And, you know, the Armenians can maintain a land, uh, some kind of link to Nagorno-Karabakh. And in return, the Armenians guarantee some uh, link to Nakhchivan, which is a, a Azerbaijani exclave located on the sort of south side of Armenia. I think you know this has been the offer that's kind of on the table, and I ultimately think that's the only thing that's really practical. Azerbaijan wanting all the territory back, it, you know, the Armenians who live, who make 90, 95 percent of the Karabakh population, aren't going to go for it. Not until we have a real process of like people getting to know each other, people reconciling with each other, can we contemplate anything like that? So I think. It's going to have to be, you know, refugee return, the return of occupied territories outside Nagorno-Karabakh to Azerbaijan, and then self-determination for the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, which will evidently lead them to become part of Armenia. But you know, the question is, how do we get there? <laughs> All right, I guess, I guess uh, we will unfortunately probably have to uh, to leave off on uh, not having a good answer. Uh, maybe to uh, to that question. Um, so uh, thank both of you guys for uh, for for coming. Uh, this this yeah, I know I learned a lot. Uh, this has been really good, and uh, let's let's uh, let's do this again very soon. Yeah, great seeing you guys. Talk to you soon. Yeah.